You're listening to. You're listening to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Ri Ren Yue. And on this episode, we have an author chat with Joseph Han, the author of Nuclear Family, a new novel that just came out a week ago about the Korean diaspora in Hawaii and their relationship with the DMZ back in Korea. Rira, this was a fun book to read, huh? Yeah, I'm really impressed at how much was in this book. Uh, <laughs> there, there were a lot of shifting perspectives, a lot of historical context, a lot of humor, just a whole mixing pot of things. And yeah, I loved it. And so Guy Fieri, I was really excited so. <laughs> to talk to you. Oh, yeah, Guy Fieri. Lots of flavors in this flavor town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had a great chat with Joseph about the inspirations for his book, about his thoughts on Asian American literature, the demilitarized zone, uh, the occupation of Hawaii, plate lunches, and also ghosts. Yeah, lots of things. <laughs> so yeah, um, please enjoy our chat with Joseph Hahn. And we're here with Joseph Han, the author of Nuclear Family, which came out June 7th, 2022, with Counterpoint Press. Uh, Joseph is calling all the way from Hawaii. So thank you so much for joining us uh, this early morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, congratulations on your book launch. Um, how's it been seeing your book in, in the world? It's been very surreal, um, but also very amazing. I'm really glad to bring this book home and to share it with my community and my loved ones all around me. And yeah, it's been a really wonderful time so far. So you have a PhD in English and creative writing. (laughs) And (laughs) that's definitely that definitely tells me that you have been a lover of literature for a very long time. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about Um, your writing journey, um, and how you became an author? Sure, yeah. Um, Well, kind of like how a lot of folks steer into their English majors as undergrads, um, I was just absolutely terrible at everything else. (laughs) And I found a lot of solace in reading and a capacity to imagine beyond myself and a way to search for meaning in my everyday life that I otherwise could not have without fiction. And so I started writing in undergrad when I took a summer elective of creative writing. And it was from that point on where I realized I did not want to remain on the outside of literature and looking in. I wanted to create within as a way to reach back out toward the world and to understand my place in it. So my book is a reflection of that, um, how I've come to understand where I grew up um, in Hawaii, where I lived most of my life, but also where my family comes from with connections to both 
the southern peninsula and the northern peninsula. Um, but yeah, uh, writing was my way of living in a way and learning how to live. Yeah, um, I see that you also teach Asian American literature, which, um, you know, for me growing up, um, we don't really have a lot of contact with Asian American literature until like that college course that kind of opens your eyes to, you know, this type of, I guess, representation in the written word. Um, Can you tell us about what drew you to both uh, studying, teaching, and also writing Asian American literature? Yeah, um, I went into undergrad thinking that I would become a high school English teacher, meaning a teacher in American literature. Um, And as I was writing, I found it increasingly difficult um, to embrace the question, why am I not writing Korean characters? Why can I not write about... Um, their background and their history. And I really struggled with what I didn't know um, about my family uh, because of what they did not tell me and also because of what my upbringing and the English language prevented me from understanding, which coincides with my American education, which posits a very particular view of Korea's division and the Korean War And so I found my way to writing Nuclear Family through reading Korean-American literature. And it wasn't until I took a graduate course in my master's degree program in Asian-American literature with uh, Candice Fujikani, who's an amazing scholar and mentor, um, where I read uh, Nora Okja Keller's Comfort Woman and wrote a graduate uh, seminar paper and on it. And that book became the catalyst for everything to follow in my life. And that's where I get the epigraph of the novel, where we see uh, a reference to the countless spirits wandering, not knowing that they're lost because they have to turn around when they reach the center or the navel of the peninsula, not knowing that they can't return home. And that became, that really opened my whole world and directed me toward what became the central subject of of nuclear family, and that being the barriers that persist, not only in our reality, but the next which comes in the form of the Korean DMZ. Yeah, I thought it was really cool that uh, the DMZ, in even in death, it's un- impenetrable. Um, spirits can't even cross it um, and meet their lost uh, lost ones. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious on like how you came up with that idea to make it an impenetrable wall, even in death. Yeah. Um, well, I started with where all of our assumptions lie when it comes to Korea, that it has always been a divided country, that it's always been fragmented between North and South, and it's something that is widely accepted in the global imaginary as necessary. And that argument is often leveled through a broad um, campaign to 
that continues today that vilifies and demonizes North Korea as an enemy and also as an antithesis to South Korea. And so I thought about how the DMZ presents itself as a barrier to, in our consciousness, to really understanding and being able to imagine what a unified and whole Korean peninsula would mean to the Korean people um, and not necessarily to the rest of the world as something that is preventing our nuclear demise. And so I wanted to really bring that into question. Um, Who remembers what kind of devastation has already been experienced during the Korean War, Um, but also how is our indifference and forgetting about Korea's history reinforce and charge the Korean DMC to exist not only as a literal place, but as a psychic and a symbolic fragmentation that exists in our minds. And so I thought, what a better place than fiction to write back against the fiction that is this imaginary arbitrary border that was created in order to keep Seoul and U.S.-occupied territory to evenly distribute the peninsula between global uh, superpowers. Um, And yeah, to ask us to reckon with how we can imagine more crossings or why we may wish to cross. And I think that goes back to how countless generations of families who were directly impacted by the Korean War and separated from their loved ones. Right now, sadly, they're passing away. And with them, they are carrying this wish and will to return to the North, to their homes, to reunite with their loved ones. And these opportunities are becoming more and more slim And so I wrote this book in order to ask how we may carry their wishes so that they're not lost, so that they're not forgotten, so that we do not continue to live in a future that is permanently militarized, which comes at the harm of not only ourselves, but I think our spirits and also, of course, the the natural environment and the planet at large. Yeah. Um, Your book has some magical realism elements to it that um, I actually didn't expect, but you you lay it out for us right from the start, right? The first chapter, it's about ghosts trying to cross the DMZ. And um, I just wanted to ask, was that always going to be a part of your, like, when did you decide to add the magical realism um, elements into your story? Yeah, um, I always think about how um, a conversation I had with a friend where she told me, or she asked me, Joseph, isn't every Korean-American story a story about war? And I think that also goes back to what Ju Hyun Park says, um, who's actively involved with uh, the Korean-American organization Nodotol in New York. Um, where they say everything, every Korean person I know who's died has died during the Korean War. 
And the Korean War is technically ongoing without a peace treaty. And the more we pass away, the more our elders um, leave us, the more we need to reckon with the impact of this war as it persists for future generations. And so I thought that a ghost story was the best way for me to understand how the Korean diaspora continues to be haunted by the secrets um, and the violences that we that are um, extraordinary in scale that we are all intimately connected to through our families and that this unknowing is something that has been so terrifying to me that there's this uh, large absence in place um, throughout my upbringing toward knowing why my family left Korea, why there is a Korean diaspora in so many different um, places throughout the world. And that goes back to the division of the peninsula, the presence of war that continues today. Um, and yeah, I I wanted to open the book with an evocation of a seemingly long lost elder um, that Jacob is going to collide with eventually in the novel. And yeah, I, I thought it was only appropriate that um, as soon as you start the book, a, a ghost will pop out. Um, kind of like a jack-in-the-box, I guess, <laughs> to startle you. Like, okay, this is what it's about. <laughs> Actually, uh, like your your work reminded me of Min Jin Lee's Pachinko. Um, I mean, it's not a ghost story, but uh, it's a multi-generational story that explores a Korean diaspora that's not really yeah. um, well circulated in literature because Pachinko is about uh, Zainichi, uh, Korean Japanese. Yeah. Uh, and in your book, you have Korean Americans or Korean um, settlers in Hawaii mm -hmm. and also a double diaspora of uh, North Koreans in South Korea. Um, I guess like Koreans who lived in a reunited uh, in a in a united Korea before it got di divided. So that's another type of di diaspora. And it's really interesting to me as a Korean American to read about this because my family, um, I have no ties to the North. So to me, um, I don't have any like personal loss or trauma tied mm. to the division of the peninsula. But that is not the case for a lot of Korean families. But at the same time, I feel like Korean literature, like South Korean literature, they don't really write about this diaspora, um, this North Korean diaspora. And in some weird way, I feel like Korean Americans are more equipped to write about North Korean diaspora in South Korea. Yeah. I don't know if it's because the loss, the feeling of loss is the same. Um, mm. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah. Wow. Rira, thank you so much for sharing Um uh, about your story, which I really appreciate. And yeah, I'm just so glad that this novel it, it has become an occasion for me to commune with um, fellow Korean Americans. So this is why I wrote the book. So I'm really happy to be connecting with 
both of you. Um, yeah, actually, um, the writer um, who's based in the Bay Area, Min Young Lee, wrote a really wonderful review about the novel in the Chicago Review of Books, addressing exactly what you mentioned, this, this sense of being doubly removed um, or this sense of how uh, Koreans in diaspora may be more uh, willing to or ready to talk about the division in ways that South Korean writers may not be able to approach. And she contextualizes that within the long history of this disavowal, as I mentioned, that Koreans are always having to uh, inherit and embody uh, regarding their indifference toward North Korea, um, their opposition toward anything that may be suspect um, for questioning or interrogation, which comes with a long history of militarized um, brutality by the South Korean government against its own people um, for having any kind of ties to the North. So we've always been had We've always been made to renounce our connections uh, to the Northern Peninsula and where we come from. And I think even Korean Americans also, in a way, have to renounce any kind of suspected ties um, to North Korea. Um, and there's always that classic question, um, which, which Korea are you from? Um, which is totally absurd. Um, but yeah, it's this conversation um, that I kept running into that informed why it is that the Cho family in Hawaii receives such a backlash toward the restaurant once Jacob becomes suspected of having these allegiances that do not align with U.S. interests. Um but yeah, it was my upbringing in Hawaii and my experience in diaspora as being so far removed from where I came from that I felt like I was neither Korean nor American. And being American on native Hawaiian land is a whole nother question because we are where I currently live. It's U.S. occupied Um lands that were stolen from the Hawaiian kingdom. And so in feeling the sense of being in between places and being separated from my own understanding of Korean history, which at the level of language felt like a more visceral and everyday experience, um, that helped me feel what separations continue to endure across generations um, between um, family members um, and all, all that is not addressed, all the stories that are not told um, for fear of the pain and trauma that it will conjure um, and bring up. And so that's why I wanted to write a ghost story where ghosts signal what cannot be forgotten and what cannot be ignored and shoot away. They persist as a way to teach us a lesson about what needs 
what has yet to be resolved in our lifetime in order to bring them peace. Um, and yeah, it was being separated from my own family. I was raised in Hawaii by my grandparents while my parents remained in South Korea. And that long separation um, gave me the feeling um, necessary to be able to understand what would it feel like to be, to not have seen your sibling or your father, mother, uncle, auntie, cousin for 70 years and counting and to not be able to recognize them when you do have the chance to re uh, reunite. Um, and I think for Korean Americans, um, I think our greatest story is a story about reunion um, and returning together and coming back together as a people. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to honor that story and to gesture toward how in these absences, there's also a lot of love that continues to endure. And so a way to heal and to move toward peace, not only um, in our lives, but for the lives that have shaped us and have paved the way for, for us. Yeah, I'm like, Koreans are very spiritual, whether you're yeah. super Christian or <laughs> yes. we're into like shamanism or wudong, you just can't take away that factor from our culture. So it made sense to me that you would write a ghost story. Um, and of course, like, um, I, like, I have a question about your title, um, nuclear family. So the word nuclear has a lot of definitions. It can mean, yeah. mean nuclear weapon, but in terms of nuclear family, it means like um, one set of parents and then their children. And the extended parts of that family is removed. So I just want to ask, like, why did you decide to go with this title? Especially when your cast of characters <laughs> go beyond the Cho family in Hawaii. Yeah, um... I almost immediately knew that this had to be the title when I came up with the premise of the book. But also, like you mentioned, I knew that it was a, um, a unit and a framework in which I needed to move beyond and past because it's so, the barriers that come with the nuclear family are its own um, enduring uh, force that separates us from having more connections and responsibilities beyond the household and those who we have familial um, bonds with. So the title became a challenge for me to see how it could implode as I wrote structurally and formally as I shifted beyond its scope, um, beyond the chose, in order to go back to writing about what is lost with the matrilineal family story, which becomes more central to the novel than I do think Teu's story does regarding his uh, wish to return um, to the North. Uh, because it's a very, the nuclear family is a very heteropatriarchal formation. And so I wanted to retrace and show how the characters needed to reconnect to um, the 
like I mentioned, the matrilineal stories that were otherwise subsumed or lost under what is also um, a patriarchal practice of ancestor worship with Chesa, where it's the eldest son that has to engage with and enact these rites, and which is why Tewu so desperately sees Jacob as the main force, living force to which he can um, embody and imbue with his sense of purpose uh, to finally overcome the long-standing barrier um, in both of their lives, um, especially regarding Jacob's barrier to his own understanding of who he is in relation to the history that has um, impacted their family and uh, pushed them to leave Korea for Hawaii. I'm glad that you brought up that Korean traditions are rooted in heteropatriarchal customs, uh, especially Cheza, because um, Mm -hmm. I I have family in Korea and I've heard my cousins like complain about Cheza, how how they would have to prepare all of the meals for their husband's ancestors and not be able to do that for their own ancestors. And they're not even allowed to participate in the in the ceremony they just do all of the work and make yeah. all the food who's and cooking all the food yeah <laughs> and then they're put <laughs> out in like the outside the hall so um yeah. i and i think you show that um show that traditional gender roles in korean culture like how it can strain relationships and i thought you wrote Grace's and Jacob's sibling relationship really well and how those traditions <laughs> could really um put very big expectations on you as a daughter or as a son. So um, yeah. my question is, do you have siblings? Like, how did you develop those uh, <laughs> those sibling dynamics so well? Yeah, um, I have a, a younger sister. Um, and we're, we have a larger age gap than Jacob and Grace does. Uh, we're nine oh, years apart. Oh, how many apart. years? Nine years. Nine years? Oh, I have yeah. you beat. My youngest brother and I are 17 years apart. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, so yeah, it was our dynamic and upbringing that really informed, um, yeah, the the particularities of sibling, Korean sibling relationships um, and how... Um, younger sisters often had this subordinate supporting character role in the family, um, especially as Grace has to become like um, her parents' assistant in, in all ways, not only at the restaurant, but in their personal day-to-day. Um, and gets this larger expectation for having to save the family somehow um, once that news breaks about Jacob Um being detained. Um, But yeah, uh, I wrote this book dedicated to my sister because um, a lot of the the plots of the nuclear family revolve around the question of what if you could never see your loved one again? And what if there was something that prevented you from seeing them ever again in this life and the next? And that tragedy and that pain, um, I felt like I could attempt to understand that in having to live apart from 
my sister for a number of years as well, um, as my immediate family, my parents and sister live in South Korea, and I maybe see them once a year, um, but less as time has passed and as the pandemic continues. Um, so, and we are... Our goodbyes are always so, so painful and they compound upon each other and every other goodbye that we've had going back to the first goodbye between me and my parents when they returned um, to Korea and I remained here in Hawaii. Um, so I think it's also just by design um, that Koreans are separated from one another um, across diaspora, across the peninsula, through language and cultural practices. There's so much to be lost, but also to be gained as we strive to reconnect with one another and to honor our connections. Yeah. So the Cho family in your book runs a uh, a plate lunch shop. And I just... <laughs> There was a lot of food in your in your book, and you know, I think that's for better or worse, that's like a staple, I guess, trope at this point of Asian American literature. Is we love to describe our foods, um, and I guess in terms of your decision to set the story in a um, plate lunch restaurant, which in itself is like an amalgamation of different cultures, like. You know, yeah. the plate lunch is, a, is itself like an allegory of like the movement of people into Hawaii, right? Yeah. Um, I guess what inspired you to um, set your story there? Yeah, um, I think, well, I write about this um, in an essay for Lit Hub that came out uh, recently, how I feel like the Korean diaspora in Hawaii is primarily understood through the Korean plate lunch and also... <sighs> Michin in particular, which is a, di a dish unique to um, the Korean diaspora in Hawaii. And yeah, it, I think it's the first thing anyone assumes about me um, when, they, when they learn that I'm Korean, where they'll say or tell me that their favorite place to eat is a Korean plate lunch restaurant. And that, you know, this is their, this encapsulates all they know or even wish to know about Korea. Um, that is, they have that there is so much offered to them all in one place um, on the Korean plate lunch. Um, so yeah, I thought it was only appropriate that this family run a plate lunch restaurant and that their what what they offer is no longer accepted when the, their um, allegiances shift away from their franchise and their success in order to focus on the betrayal or shame that Jacob's attempted crossing brings to them, but also brings as far as the anxiety that a lot of um, people living in Hawaii continue to carry, the fear that we are always prone to um, another attack, or um, and that's very much encapsulated in the build-up to the false missile alert as it shows up in the novel. 
Um, but yeah, uh, the yeah plate lunches. It's, <laughs> it's it's the it's the main thing we have going on here um, as far as Korean food. It's it's kind <laughs> of like how in LA in LA people are like, oh yeah, you're Korean. I love Korean barbecue. And yeah, like, yeah. I love how you could just sum up my identity with your favorite dish from your favorite restaurant. And yeah. I like how you... <laughs> to be fair, I think we kind of do it to ourselves too sometimes. I mean, true. But our food is good though, Marvin. So like, of course, yeah. we're going to be boastful about it. But like one of... The, like your book is so funny, by the way, um, oh, Joseph. There were just like some parts where I would just snicker, even though, <laughs> even yeah. though the subject matter was very... Uh, serious and depressing. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was just kind of a situation where I'm like, I'm laughing because it's so sad. And yeah. that is the only way I can cope with um, yeah. what is happening on the page right now. Well, speaking um, of ghosts, yeah. I mean, one of the ghosts that does haunt the restaurant is the ghost of Guy Fieri. And I love that I was laughing throughout your entire chapter devoted to Guy Fieri and the effect that he has on like small mom and pop shops. Um, yeah. Why was why did you include Guy Fieri in your story? Well, I guess to sum it up, everyone loves Guy Fieri, especially white people. Um, and I knew that that would be the hook when it came to the novel in the same way that it becomes a hook for the world and the characters in Nuclear Family to start attending uh, the Cho's plate lunch restaurant because they got this stamp of approval from the white culinary cultural ambassador to America. Um, And yeah, like their first media appearance with um, diners, drive-ins, and dives, then becomes taken up in stark contrast to their second media appearance with Jacob um, making international headlines. Um, so to trace that fall um, and how they may never go back to those glory days that were signaled by people waiting outside and the sense of community that it brought them that um, Grace's mom could become like an anti-figure to everyone who walked through their doors. And so too, could their sense of family also reach the perimeters of the restaurant? But it only lasts insofar as they pay and then leave. And we see how quick they are to leave and not consider the Cho's family anymore once they suspect something's going on um, that, yeah, that none of them really could understand. And that um, is put into relief through Jacob's experience and story. I also just really love how much like the grandfather ghost wants to return to his home, North Korea, Guy Fieri longs to return to his flavor town that he can't find anymore. <laughs> yeah, he's always talking about it, but it's like this unreachable, <laughs> utopic place. Um. This is just like a minor thing in your book that I thought was just like really done really well. But Joseph's co-workers at the... Um, the after the English after school program in Seoul that they work at, like one of one of the coworkers is a white guy who like 
studied Asian American like linguistics yeah. <laughs> and like did Taekwondo and is like a black belt. And then the other coworker is a Korea boo, pretty much, who yeah. is really into K dramas and K pop. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> that like two very familiar faces you will see in um, in English classrooms <laughs> these days. <laughs> And it just made me think about how uh, a lot of Korean culture, Korean food, it it has that stamp of cool approval yeah. because of uh, like the white experts, quote unquote. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. The same kind of lineage to Guy Fieri. To Guy Fieri, uh, yes. Every white yeah. person is a Guy Fieri. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for an extended and beautiful and hilarious look at those themes that you bring up, um, Elaine Shi Chu's Disorientation is a fabulous novel um, that also gets at these these themes of um, appropriation and so forth. Um, but yeah, as far as I'm concerned, everyone who's not Korean is a Korea boo in my perspective um, <laughs> because yeah it, there's so much to be loved and adored about Korean culture pop culture in particular these days food um, so much to be consumed um, as it is exported um, at, a, at a large scale um, culturally from from South Korea um, and yeah, I, it only goes so far, that love and um, adoration for Korean culture that doesn't go beyond into um, dealing with or reckoning with the historical implications of what made all of this possible, um, what um, violences the peninsula came to bear and continues to bear with um, the U.S. military presence there and the violences that surround military bases um, that are often gendered um, that impact the land with pollution. And um, so I think that so too that applies to Hawaii as well with the consumability and desirability of Hawaii that is predicated on such violent histories. Um, so yeah, I um, I hope to bring that conversation toward um, both places as places to be um, desired and consumed, and what conditions those appetites. Uh, yeah, like one chapter that really uh, made an impression on me was a chapter titled "Locals," and. Uh, <laughs> It's kind of written in the perspective of a Greek chorus of mm. Native Hawaiians, and it provides historical context on like the history of immigrants and settlers who came to Hawaii due to fleeing colonial rule in their yeah. homeland and uh, how they were part of an exploitative uh, system, but have also benefited off of the land and its natives. Um and you did draw parallels between the division of Korea and the loss of Hawaiian sovereignty. So uh, my question is, like, what are some steps 
you think would have to be made for those war wounds to be healed? Mm, That's a really beautiful question. And I think the question that I asked myself as I wrote this book, um, the Locos chapter is, like you mentioned, a chorus of voices, not only of um, the uh, Native Hawaiian community, but various immigrant um, communities um, who are customers at... uh, the Zippy's restaurant in which Grace kind of has a episode of sorts, um, which I won't spoil too much. Um, but yeah, healing, it's going to take a lot of healing for, um, for both Hawaii and Korea. And when I talk about imagining a reunified Korean peninsula, um, healing the wound that is the DMC, that cannot occur, I don't think, until Hawaii is also demilitarized and deoccupied of its military-industrial complex. For one, an immediate step toward healing, which is absolutely urgent right now, is the defueling of the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility which is 20 super massive tanks that store jet fuel right above Hawaii's primary drinking aquifer. And it's already leaked into our aquifer. We've had to shut down our wells and shaft that draw from that aquifer in order to prevent jet fuel from being pulled into the water supply of one third of Honolulu. Um, And over about 93,000 families have already had their water contaminated. Um, Folks' pets have died. Um, Babies have gotten sick. People have been hospitalized. Mostly the Navy's own personnel living on the military housing um, surrounding uh, Red Hill and close to Pearl Harbor, which is its own super fun site that that has contaminated the bays. Um, and so forth. So there's an active um, push for defueling as a necessary step toward ensuring our health, um, but also the health of our natural resources and to ensure that future generations have access to clean drinking water, um, which is a universal right in that regard. Um, And in the opening chapter of the book, I mentioned how the spiritual DMZ barrier is powered by um, the millions of landmines slumbering on either side of the border, which are unexploded, which are waiting to be found until someone comes into contact with them. And unfortunately, a lot of South Korean Um, communities have died in their encounters with these landmines. Um, And also in places like Makua Valley in Hawaii, which was used for live fire training and target practice, there's also many unexploded mines and bombs there that have yet to be cleaned up and which continue to pose a danger 
Um, and these were lands that were once used for agricultural purposes and were used to feed um, countless number of communities. And the land was a place of abundance and growth and whose meaning has been altered for the purposes of war and war making. And there are many places, um, including Pearl Harbor, um, the Pohakalo training area on the, on the island of Hawaii. Every day they continue to test weapons um, and there are poisonous clouds that come up and spread across the island from um, these weapons testing and training that impact not only the soldiers themselves, but reach into the surrounding communities who can hear and feel the rattling of these bombs um, every day. Um, and likewise, it's very common in Oahu to see military aircrafts just flying across the sky and using the same fuel that is poisoning our water. Um, so our realities are so militarized, all for the sake of um, our freedom and our security, but also at our expense, which is, uh, which is such a paradox. Um, so a lot of healing to do, but also a lot of calls for action and accountability um, for the Department of Defense to clean up their mess, um, to defuel Red Hill, um, to consider, you know, and I, I wrote this book to ask everyone to consider, like, um, yeah, at whose expense are we maintaining that our that land such as Korea and Hawaii and other places like Okinawa and Guam must be militarized for the sake of our freedoms um, and our sense of security, when in fact they pose the biggest risk to our bodies and the lands on which they occupy, but also the rest of the world as the Department of Defense is the largest contributor to climate change and I believe the greatest threat to our planet um, that we must reckon with in order to reverse what can be an alterable course. Yeah. I mean, wow. <laughs> I mean, definitely when I was reading your book, I think a lot about my own family's um, experience with war. You know, my family was also separated by the Chinese Civil War, um, but also how... Even today, in the way that we live our lives, supposedly in peace, we're still haunted by those ghosts, both in like the trauma that's handed down through the generations, but also through like policies and what's still happening in the name of military and war. So, yeah, also for a lot of American readers, they might think that, oh, like the American forces in Korea, they're necessary because yeah. of North Korean, uh, yeah. North Korea being a threat, but it goes both ways, right? Yeah. <laughs> So exactly. I think it really I think your book really does start like it starts a conversation on decentering uh like the American savior complex yeah. in in South Korean history and just like you said like talking about the costs of militarizing these lands and who's benefiting off of it. I think it is a really good way to start a conversation that people 
don't really want to start because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, So as we wrap up our chat with you, and once again, thank you so much for for speaking with us on Books and Boba. Um, What's next for you? Are you working on another book? Are you enjoying the the accolades of this (laughs) one? Like, what's going on? Um, What's next is taking a break, for sure. Um, Yeah, trying to slow down a bit because things have been moving incredibly fast leading up to the publication of the book. And um, yeah, right now I'm working on a short story collection, which I think builds upon the world of nuclear family as its own kind of cinematic universe, so to speak. Um, But it takes a broader look at the Korean diaspora in Hawaii to move beyond the plate lunch restaurant to look at um, barbecue restaurants, for example, um, the education system in Hawaii and Korean hagwons in Hawaii, which is inspired by my own family's connection to hagwons and um, my my parents' um, experience as working class uh, immigrants here. Um, but it also returns to some favorite beloved characters in Nuclear Family. Um, I guess I can say Grace and Jacob make their reappearance in the collection um, in stories that precede the novel. So kind of like their origin stories that I couldn't write in the book. Um, Will we I'm get really more uh, weed adventures? <laughs> um, maybe an origin story related to Grace on that front. Sounds fun. Okay, well, I have one last comment before we close out. Um, I just want to say I love the cover of your book because... Oh, thank you. uh, Like, I I might be wrong, but are those the prayer ribbons at the DMZ? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I thought, like, I thought so. I mean, it's hard for me to tell because I'm like, I've never been to the DMZ, but I was like, well, it's a book about the yeah. separations. I'm guessing that's what it was. But um, was that like an idea that you pitched to your publishers or did they just come with you uh, with that cover? Yeah, I. it was an idea that I pitched and I always knew that I wanted, I wanted the readers to grab and touch the Korean DMZ when they grab the book, um, to feel these ribbons and to think about how they may have, how readers may have someone that that they need to honor and remember and to suggest that, you know, we, there are so many people that, um, are lost to us because of history and as we move on and forget. And though this story is about many ghosts and many lost loved ones attempting to reunite as it's portrayed in the number of ribbons on the cover, I think of my offering and this novel alone as a singular ribbon among many. And yeah, I, I love the cover and it's it's so exciting for me to see this image um, meeting places that I never would have thought it would go to, to see that people are yeah, gravitating toward its beauty 
that it's grasping them and that it, it, it also becomes that invitation for them to, to confront the barriers in their own life that come up in, in memory and in forgetting. Um, but yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's a very striking cover. All right. Well, thank you so much, Joseph, for speaking with us. And um, we hope you the best in all your future endeavors. Yeah. And that was our author chat with Joseph Hahn, the author of Nuclear Family, available now at booksellers everywhere. Uh, you can also purchase it at Books and Boba's online bookstore at Bookshop uh, to support your local bookstores and the Books and Boba um, book club. Um, I definitely recommend it. Um, I had a ton of fun reading the book. It's, you know, <laughs> like Rebus said, it has a lot of very heavy themes, but it's actually really funny and ultimately a very optimistic book as well. Yeah, if dark comedy is your thing, <laughs> um, it will definitely strike in your humor zone. Yeah. So. And we didn't even touch on like the stoner comedy that's in the middle of this book as well. Oh, no, I left that. I purposely left that out because I want people to <laughs> like enjoy it without any spoilers because my goodness um it is it is very colorful to say the least (laughs) all right uh well rira please remind us what we're reading for book club uh for the month of june 2022 we are reading last night at the telegraph club by melinda lowe and it is set during the 1950s in san francisco and follows a young gay chinese american girl who stumbles upon a lesbian bar. Yeah, no, we're super excited to get into it. If you are reading along with us or you have read the book already, um, please let us know your thoughts on our Goodreads forums. We always love to um, see what our members think and also include your insights into our book club discussion as well. And on that note, um, oh, before we leave, we don't do this as often as we should but if you are enjoying our podcast um, please leave us a rating and review on apple or wherever you listen to your podcast or help share us on social media it really does help um, people discover our show as well as um, helps us with you know all the hidden algorithms that go on in the background of your podcast app so yeah we really appreciate your support and on that note thank you so much for listening and we'll see you all next time bye everybody bye Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. podcast Asians in Baseball alongside Naomi Ko and Scott Okamoto. Asians in Baseball is exactly what it sounds like, a podcast about the Asian and Asian Native Hawaiian Pacific Islander Americans in Major League Baseball. Every week, we break down the highlights of what's going on with Asians in Baseball and then take a deeper dive into the Asian and Asian Americans past and present who have shaped baseball as it is today. 
Whether you're Kim Ang's number one fan or you've never even heard of Hideo Nomo, we've got something for everyone, especially for the Shohei Otani stands. Maybe too much for the Shohei Otani stands. Listen to Asians in Baseball wherever you get podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.